Greetings, cultivators worldwide. Jordan River back with more Growcast, serving you faithfully in your garden. Today, we have a brand new guest as we enter this new year and we enter in-depth January. That's right. It's deep dive after deep dive, some in-depth education all month long. Well, our first guest, like I said, a brand new one, Kevin McKernan, is a viral expert. And this episode is going to open your eyes to hop latent viroid, tobacco mosaic virus, and we're going to go deeper than we've ever gone before. And by the end of this episode, you're going to understand more about these viruses and viroids than you ever have before. Before we jump into it, though, shout out to Photon Tech, the sexy red high-performance LED lights. You can find them at growcastpodcast.com slash photon. Code Growcast saves you 10% on some amazing magnetic high-efficiency bar lights. I love my 600-watt. Let me tell you, these things are off the chain. The magnetic bars make it easy to put together, uh, easy to disassemble and reassemble. If one goes out, you can pop it off and mail it back. They'll replace it. It's got a five-year warranty, and they've got just about the best efficiency and PPF in the game. The 1,000-watt, Shane from Migro said it was too powerful. That's right. You're going to need to dim this thing down unless you have everything dialed in. The PPF is almost 3,000 umoles, folks. The 1,000-watt, they require CO2 supplementation. They're so powerful. Photon Tech Lighting, baby. Code GROWCAST, 10% off. Get the square models if you have a 2x2 or 3x3. Get the 600-watt if you're in a 5x5. The 465 is perfect for a 4x4. And the 1,000-watt is if you're crazy and you want one of the most powerful lights in the game. Code GROWCAST at growcastpodcast.com slash photon. That brings you right there. Use those savings and send us a snapshot of your code always to be entered to win free seats. Thank you to Photon Tech. I love them. They're powerful. They're efficient. They're easy to assemble. Truly one of the best lights on the market. Go and get it, everybody. Code GROWCAST. All right, everyone, let's get into it with our new guest, Kevin. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, podcast listeners. You are now listening to Growcast. I'm your host, Jordan River, and I want to thank you for tuning in again today. Before we get started, as always, I urge you to share the show. That's right. Tell a grower, tell a smoker, and turn them on to Growcast. It's the best thing you can do is get someone growing. And see all of our action that we're doing at growcastpodcast.com slash action. There you'll find the seeds and the masterclasses and membership and all the fun stuff. Today, we are deep in it. In-depth January. We're going very, very deep into cannabis cultivation science here in January. Very, very excited about it. Thank you for being here, dear listeners. And I want to say thank you to a first-time guest. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, virals. We're talking about viruses and viroids, hop latent viroid and tobacco mosaic virus, and so much more. We have a wonderful guest who is a viral expert. Kevin McKernan is on the line. What's up, Kevin? How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. It's a really important topic these days, so I'm glad you're uh, cutting some air for it. Oh, man, absolutely. I was very excited to get you on. You know, we've spoken to guests before about about uh, virals in the cannabis plant, but just kind of from a 30,000 foot view, you know what I mean? It really seems like you're one of the, I don't want to blow smoke here, but it seems like you're one of the experts on this subject. I don't know how well it's understood overall, but can you please first talk about your background and what brought you to virals and then cannabis viroids? Oh, okay. So uh, my background uh, started on the Human Genome Project in 1996 or so. So I, I was managing the research and development team there for Eric Lander. Whoa. And we were building um, equipment to do sequencing of the human genome, robotic platforms in particular that use a lot of magnetic bead tools. And 
And uh, in 2000, I spun some of that technology out into a company called Agicorp Personal Genomics, and we built tools to actually detect viruses, uh, to pick up HIV and, and a variety of other human pathogen, pathogenic viruses. Whoa. So that's those wild. are mostly based on magnetic bead purification tools. So I've been playing around with bacteriophage and E. coli for a long time, like M13, and then also detecting um, vir- human viruses out of blood. And then we built a DNA sequencer called the Solid Sequencer that Applied Biosystems came and acquired. And I worked with Applied Biosystems for another five years, bringing that to market. And that was often used to track down. Um, some of the first applications were in microRNAs, which are going to come into play in our discussion about viroids. So wow. I wouldn't call myself a virus expert in that most of my publications are actually in, in fungal genomes, human genomes, and cannabis genomes, what have you. But we have touched on all the tools of um, in my career of playing with RNA and trying to detect these things with qPCR. So I, I have wow. some more of a detection background than, let's say, a bi- biology background here. Sure, sure. That makes sense. That is really wild. What was that shift like? from human virals into plant virals? Are they are they very similar or was there a bit of a learning curve there? Well, there's a learning curve in that when you're in the mammalian front, you're never really thinking about viroids. They just don't infect humans. Sure. And they tend to be relegated to fungi and plants at the moment. But you know, there, there is some better appreciation now in the human genome that you can get these lariats, which are circular RNAs, very similar to um, viroids that happen due to back splicing on certain you know, genes. But there's a lot of them in the human genome that are just underappreciated because they, they often um, are failed to be, they, they don't easily get captured by a lot of the RNA sequencing tools that are out there. So mm. sometimes they're missed. So there is circular RNA in human biology. It's just not, we don't see visible viroid, uh, if you will, sure. that, that seems to move through plants and fungi. So we've talked about this just basically before, the difference between a viroid and a virus. My understanding is that it has to do something with the protein coding and that viroids are generally smaller. Is that a good assessment or was there right. something you would add to that? Yeah, well, it's that, it's that fact that the, the, uh, the viroids don't have a protein code. That's true. But they're also so small that they don't code for any proteins. And that's a little bit hard to get your head around. Like, what, how does a short, like, 256-letter genome end up doing anything? It's, it's too short to really mean anything, right? I mean, that's, that's wow. kind of the, 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 first, the first thing. We, when we started looking at this, we're like, how does this thing actually – how is it pathogenic? It's, it's probably just a carrier. It can't possibly be real. And then the more you, you dig into the literature, you realize it's not exerting its pathology by, by making any particular type of protein. It's relying on the host genome's proteins to, to replicate itself and assemble itself. But what it does have is some sequence similarity to the RNA transcripts that the host makes. And so it's playing some game of interacting with the host RNA and shutting down the expression of certain genes. So a lot more of the viroid biology makes, it makes a lot more sense once you start looking at this RNA interference process, this process where certain RNAs that are homologous to certain messenger RNAs can shut them down and turn them off. It's called, some people call it RNA silencing. And uh, it's, it's a mechanism that some people are, they're, they're optimistic of using this as a target in biology for a long time, where you can take an mRNA and and transfect it into a cell and have it shut down the expression of certain genes. Wow. And so it's, it's, a very, it's actually, it's a very powerful tool that's been leveraged. If you've, if you've paid attention to the stem cell biology field, um, a lot of this was leveraged to shut down four genes to convert cell, uh, cells into pluripotent stem cells. They, they shut down OCT4 and a few other genes, and suddenly the cells, the mammalian cells suddenly go back to being a stem cell, and you can further differentiate them into something else. So the RNA interference pathway is incredibly powerful and underappreciated. And, uh, and um, once you start looking at viroids through that lens, you recognize that, okay, you don't, you don't need a very large footprint to do a lot of damage. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. This is incredible. So that kind of hijacking that you just discussed and the silencing of genes, 
from a layperson's perspective, boots on the ground in the cannabis grow, is that why we see things like dudding, where this expression of robust trichome production and all of the phenols and, and compounds within the trichome head, they just stop? Is that what you're describing, the silencing of those expressions? Yeah, so the paper, the preprint that we put out, um, what we did is we, we took the 256 base pair genome of, uh, there's, so there's one viroid, hop latent viroid that was published in 1988 by Pukta et al. when they studied this in hop. Mm-hmm. Now, those sequences have diverged somewhat as they've moved into cannabis. However, there was about 160 of these genomes in NCBI that you can download and, and then compare them to the cannabis transcriptomes that are out there. There's one from Jamaican Lion that we use that we did a lot of work with um, PacBio on building a, a really good transcriptome database. And so we, we took those all of the 162 hop latent viroids that are in NCBI and then aligned them against the cannabis transcriptome to figure out what genes could it potentially be shutting off. And a couple genes of real, real relevance show up. One is, is COG7, which is involved in shoot apical meristome SEM growth, or SAM. Another one is expansion A1, which is also important in growth and has been described in other viroid infections as being shut down. Mm. There's a list of about 24 of these genes that are 25 in total, actually, that are, that are impacted by this, the, the homologies that we can find. Now, you have to, um, as you dig into this, it gets a little bit more nuanced than just those 25 genes. The, the fascinating thing about viroids is that since they... They're hijacking host replicative material. They're doing it in a way, they're kind of hot wiring the, the, the polymerases that copy them. And, and as a result, those polymerases do a very poor job copying these viroids. They make a lot of mistakes. So the viroids are actually more diverse than coronaviruses. So if everyone's paying attention to the, the scariant of the week that comes out of the coronavirus field, the hop latent viroid front uh, mutates 10 times faster. Whoa. So you, you end up having, um, a, when you start studying this, you, you recognize that some viroids that are out there shut down expansion, could shut down expansion A1, and other ones may not because there's a couple SNPs in that region that make it hit a different gene. So um, you really have to pay attention to the viroid strain to get a, get a sense of you know, what it might be doing in the plant. Now, that being said, we, we, we've done some projects here with um, Colin Palmer was one who was very helpful in, in this front. He he had um, 12 mother plants um, and he received a clone from a nursery, you know, maybe six months ago. And suddenly some of his plants started um, showing some mosaic symptoms. So he thought it was tobacco mosaic virus. We did too, just looking at the leads. But after we did um, screening of 12 different viruses with um, some PCR panels, we had all of them, not all of them, eight of the 12 plants were positive for hop latent viroid and nothing else. What was bizarre is only two of the plants really showed symptoms. Six of them were positive, but it was not obvious that they were actually showing any form of dudding. Right. Now, you know, once we had the information, he went back and started kind of, you know, poking the plants a little bit more, realized some of the petioles were brittle. He's like, okay, well, maybe these are infected and they're just not as symptomatic as the other two. So um, I think one lesson we're learning this is, is that PCR positivity isn't going to be 100% predictive of, of dudding. Right. That makes sense. Because of the difference in viroids, right? And because of the yes. difference in plants' resistance. Exactly. And the, the plant's genome matters here as well, uh, which is also quite, quite polymorphic. So in the course of the study, what we did, once we found that COG-7 had, a, had one of the longer homologies, it had about 19 bases of homology from COG-7 to the hoplatin viroid genome, and it had that in like 70% of all the viroids that are in NCBI. So that was one of the, the hottest, I think, hits that we had. We went back and looked at the 1,700 genomes we have in Canopedia, 
and found that there was about five cultivars in there that had mutations in that exact region of COG-7, suggesting maybe they don't have the same RNA interference uh, applied to them and they might be less symptomatic. We did, we did contact those growers and none of them had seen hop latent bar, right? But it's a bit of an anecdote because they're not certain they've ever been presented with it, right? They weren't challenged with infection. They just have perhaps have been lucky and not ever seen it before because they're not, sure. they're not per se a nursery. So I have a question for you. If I could interject on this, on this idea of resistance and, and, and different expressions of these viruses and living things, maybe this is entering the realm of speculation on your part, but I'd, I'd love to hear it. Does the rhizosphere, does the plant's microbiome play much of an impact? And if so, which? Because you look at humans, right, and our interaction with viruses right. and how much of our immunity is based on our microbiome and our gut and, and, and across our body. Absolutely. What about the rhizosphere yeah. and, and how it plays into this? So there is some data on, which one is it? I think it's hop stunt viroid where they tracked fungal transmission of the viroid through the mycelium and through spores. So that, now we don't, we haven't seen that in hop latent viroid yet, but they're in the same family of viroids. So if I were to place bets on any speculation, I would bet that hop latent viroid is moving through fungal mycelia and through maybe fusarium spores. Which means if you've an important bit of information, because if you just view this as mechanical transmission, you may miss uh, other forms of transmissibility. Right. Like being in the same bed and being part of the same fungal network may transmit these viruses. Yeah. Same root bed is probably a problem. And then if you have, if you have fusarium outbreaks uh, or other, even uh, I'd worry about other fungal outbreaks as well. If you can go through fusarium just happens to be the one that they studied, but if you happen to have aspergillus or something else, it may find its way through those spores as well. And it just puts a little bit more tension on making sure, um, you know, after you're done bleaching everything or your scissors and everything, making sure you don't have flies that are moving the stuff around. You may need to be aware of uh, fungal loads and making sure those are, uh, those are low as well. Otherwise, it might start transmitting in that manner. Wow. And then what about bacteria? Isn't there some sort of virus combating function of some bacteria? Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't uh, gone down that literature as much, but it would make sense because a lot of the biocontrol agents out there are, in fact, bacteria that, that fight off certain fungal infections, like bacillus is one that a lot of people use. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there are bacteria out there that have different types of RNAs that can kill these viroids or, or at least um, limit, limit their growth. That's very interesting. That's the hope, I guess. Yeah, that, that, that is the hope. Um, now, you, you raised a point about resistance, and I want to just be careful about those, that terminology because at, at the moment, we're not seeing necessarily resistance, or, or I should say, what does resistance mean in light of a viroid? Sure. You, know, you, you would think resistance would kind of like put a magical shield around the plant and not let the viroid in. I, I don't think that's what we're going to find with these viroids. Right. I think what you're going to find are plants that are, the viroid gets in, you're still PCR positive, but you're not symptomatic. Right. And it doesn't necessarily get symptomatic when you go into flowering. I think that's a very important distinction because I, I think what we're, get, what we're in the process of doing now is we're surveying all of the plants we have in the database for variants that exist under these hypothetical regions of homology to the to hot viroid genome. So we've got like 25 targets, a little bit more than 25 now that we've seen more genomes. But let's say there's 30 targets in the genome that we're keeping a close eye on. We're now cataloging all the plants that have variants in those regions that way we can perhaps identify which ones might make sense to cross so that we could get knockouts in the regions that are the viroid might have exert some pathology on. Oh, wow. Now, any plant that, that might come out of that, it would probably evade the RNA interference capacity of the viroid, but that doesn't mean it's going to stop the viroid from replicating in the plant. Right. So the plant could still be 
PCR positive. Uh, and that, that has implications on whether you want that plant around or not. I mean, I, I do think you're certainly, there's certainly a worry about it having transmission. If, if you have things that can still replicate but aren't symptomatic, people are worried it's going to be a, 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 a super spreader, right? However, um, if you look at this viroid history in the, in the field of hops, it, it, they haven't gotten rid of this in 40 years. And I think one of the reasons why it's not gone away in 40 years is because it has other reservoirs. It, it can go into cannabis. It can go into tomato. It can go into right. fungal mycelium. So the hops, people can work as hard as they can, but there's still a cannabis breeder that's keeping this virus alive. Exactly. And, um, but, but what they have done in the hops field is they take note of the plants and the cultivars they have that are, have less of a shift in yield and less of a loss in secondary metabolite production. Mm-hmm. So they're not in hops. I've not, it'd be great to talk to some people who, who are really immersed in this in, in, the, in the hop field because reading the literature might, might be giving me a bit of a bias here. But when I read through the literature, they don't see 40% loss of yield on all cultivars. Sure. Right? They, they see, maybe 10% and the secondary metabolite profile doesn't necessarily drop like you see in cannabis, but it does change. Like it shifts from different expressing different amounts of alpha, alpha and beta acids. So there is an impact that it has, but they have identified cultivars that are less impacted by this over time. I think that's the stage that we're in, in the cannabis field is we, this thing is now moved to a new host and now it's colliding with a bunch of genes. It probably evolved to evade, to, to be a little bit less symptomatic in hops over time, right? This is a, there's a, there's a well-known thing in virology known as um, Mueller's ratchet, where these viruses mutate, but they tend to mutate towards transmissibility, not towards pathology or, or pathogenicity, because right. if you kill your host, you don't transmit. So if it's been in hops for a long time, it's probably mutated itself into a corner where it doesn't have dramatic impact on yield, and yet it can still transmit. Once you move it into a new host, it may start being, you know, a, a bull in a china shop and, and knocking down different genes in that host up until it finds a little bit more of a symbiotic position in that host, and until we start breeding for other hosts that uh, aren't as severely impacted by it. So mm-hmm. I think we're in that early stage where we have to start the breeding to find the cultivars that are more tolerant of this because uh, you can PCR this. The cows come home, and and and, and that's, yes, people need to do that when their when their house is on fire and they got to get rid of this. But it's going to come back on your knocking on your door if you don't immediately institute a breeding program that tries to you know select for plants that are less impacted by this. That is very very fascinating, and it seems like it's echoing what other guests have said, which is the same thing about hops, which is it's not as devastating in the hops field because of the cultivar selection, and how that's probably something we're going to have to do in the cannabis world as well. It's an invisible threat, but we need to track it and make sure that it doesn't ruin some of the very important gene pools. Although there are ways to get around these viruses, right? I don't know if you want to take a little bit of a left turn, but I see a lot of growers doing tissue culture cloning, for instance, taking very small pieces of the main meristem, cloning them out in, in a Petri dish, sometimes multiple times to reduce the amount of viral tissue uh, eventually to, to near zero. Is that a good assessment of that situation? And, and what do you think of tissue culture cloning? So we're not tissue culture experts. We, we have sent a few of these out to a couple of tissue culture um, facilities to try to get them to, re- to rescue um, some of Collins plants. And we haven't yet been successful, but I don't think that's been their fault. I think it's been, we've been challenged trying to get them material with all types of interstate complications. Sure. So that has been that's that's one thing that plagues the field. Although I think some of those laws are changing, we we may have been overly conservative on what we could and where we could ship things. Sure, yeah, I know how that goes. It's very nebulous right now, and you're yeah. just trying to conduct some research, you know. Right, right, and and it's you know it's hard for us to run around and get legal opinions every year because the law changes so frequently. But right, 
we've been sticking with the legal opinion we've had for many years ago, which was prior to the farm bill. So it's probably hyper conservative compared to what you can do today. But, you know, anyway, I have heard of that. I've heard it takes some time. I've heard uh, it, it, you do need, um, you need to be a pro at this. It sounds like uh, oftentimes when they do this, they have to right. do maybe 10 different cuttings and maybe three of them actually make it through the, the cold storage that they use to, to eliminate this. And that's, that, you know, that's a, that's a great way to try to um, combat this. I think there's another question that the, the field hasn't yet answered because the literature is a little bit confused on this. There, if you look at um, this in hop latent viroid in hops, there's a few papers out there that suggest hops expresses a couple of nucleases in the pollen that shut down the RNA presence of this in hop pollen. However, when you look at hop latent viroid in tomato, they actually can see that it transmits uh, via seed. So the jury is still out on whether this wow. is transmitting in seed in cannabis. So some species, it's been confirmed that it doesn't pass through the pollen, but we've observed it in other species passing down exactly. the progeny. That's crazy. So I don't think we know yet. I, you know, I've heard a couple of anecdotes in the field of people saying it does or it doesn't, or it's, you know, I, I some percentages as to how much it does. And I haven't seen anything written up on those studies yet. So I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to, to believe them at the moment, only because I, I do think in order to do this right, you have to look, you can't just grind up seeds and look for it in seeds because the maternal coat of the seed is, is maternal. And uh, there may be contamination uh, that isn't necessarily transmissible into the next generation. You really have to sprout things and look at them in the next generation and keep ah. things uh, very, very, very clean in the process. So I know of a lot of people working on that. So we'll probably have an answer on that in six months as to you know, what percentage it moves in the seeds, if at all. Oh, that's hot. Well, we're going to have to have you back. That's important information. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, we're, not, <laughs> we're not running those studies ourselves, but I'm, I'm just uh, I'm kind of eagerly awaiting the results from other people that are, that are um, putting efforts into that. But, but you know, if for, if for some reason it, it has low transmissibility in seeds, there might be a way of, of getting through this with uh, a seed or a synthetic seed, kind of like what they're doing with tissue culture. And that might, that might help uh, clear it out. Wow. Um, but I mean, the, the other thing to be aware of is based on the nature of this RNA interference, I think most plants out there that are, that are going to be tolerant of this, and I bet this is true in hops well, that uh, when you have a plant that doesn't have as extreme dudding or somehow evaded this RNAi capacity, I think the viroid is still going to be replicative in those, and therefore it's still going to be PCR positive. So while you can use PCR to screen a lot of your clones and just throw them out if they're positive because they're cheap, when you start going to your mother plants, you should be probably applying very different scrutiny because uh, if you happen to have some plants there that you're breeding in the direction of being more tolerant of this, they're probably still going to be PCR positive. And having, having a window on how positive they are is, is going to be very helpful. Mm. You know, there are tests that are coming out that are just like presence absence. We've, we've made these presence absence tests for other organisms as well. But at this early stage of a pandemic like this, I think you really want the CT scores so that you can get, gain more information about what's going on as you're breeding toward you know, plants that have potentially some level of tolerance to this. Right. That makes sense. Get the get the amount of the virus. It's like when you take that uh, Kahuna virus test and, and you, you take it and sometimes the line is just barely faint. And then other times it's just like, boom, it's right there. <laughs> I assume that probably has to do with the presence, the amount. And it would be it would be important for the, the viral load. Right. I hope I'm using that term right in your plant itself. I think that's going to be a very important thing to keep your eye on. The benefit of the of the. Um, Presence absence tests is a lot of them are a little bit more portable and you might be able to use them point at point of grow and they're fine, probably fine for screening a lot of the clones. It is hard right now from an assay standpoint to know what the true false positive and false negative rates are for a lot of those types of tests. Sure. Just because they're, 
you know, th this is not a, a viroid you can go and buy at a biobank and, and, and dilute it in at certain numbers of infectious units. Yeah, how would you know? How would you even know if it was so, false? Yeah, you, what you, people tend to do is they just dilute down a DNA control down to and count how many copies they can detect. However, that can be misleading. I've seen a few people kind of advertise picking up, you know, four or five copies of these things. And we can do that too with, with PCR and RN. We're just reluctant for people to be believing that that is, that is exclusively a hop latent viroid target. I think when you get out to like CT scores and PCR past 35, you really need sequence validation to know whether your signal is real and that's on target, particularly when you're dealing with a viroid that has a lot of homology to the cannabis genome. Sure. So it's so similar that you might be picking up something else. You might be picking up, yeah, some some cultivar of yours has a few few variants, and therefore the primers at late CT tend to pick up some cannabis background. So, Jeez. I mean, when you it, it's just confounded actually the entire coronavirus pandemic. If you look at what's going on there, there's been a lot of CT, you know, people using CTs out at 37, and yet they don't sequence validate anything unless it's CT of 30 or below. Uh, CDC won't sequence it unless it's 28 or below. So we don't really know what's on target on the late CT front in the coronavirus pandemic. It could be other coronaviruses or flus that are popping up on those on those PCRs. So when you start taking something as as uh, that has so much information content as PCR, this 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 metric of the CT score is uh -huh. is usually linear over six orders of magnitude. It's a very powerful bit of information. When you suddenly compress that into a yes no answer. A lot of concerns over false negatives and false positives pop up, which which probably aren't a big deal in disposable clones, but on mothers, I, I would use something a lot more sensitive and informative sure. when you start when you start thinking about throwing around a, a thrown away a very valuable mother plant. More reliable, and and if you're symptomatic, then you know something. Suddenly, you have a clue. But what you're worried about is asymptomatic transmission. I think we want um, there's there's a concern of asymptomatic transmission. Um, that's certainly if you have a plant that is that is tolerant of this and the virus is still replicating, maybe some flies can transfer it. And that would be a problem for you keeping that plant around. But we also, uh, I think people, it might be wise for some people to have some rooms they can isolate a few of these things in. So if they have a plant that's PCR positive, is not showing symptoms, they think might be a winner to breed with to get more tolerant lines, don't kill it, isolate it and, and breed with it further. In fact, call, contact us. We'll, we may be, we're interested in sequencing the genomes of the plants that are less symptomatic, just so we can try to um, capture some of the diversity out there that might get us out of this. My, my biggest fear is that if you apply the PCR tools uh, very blindly and just crush everything that's PCR positive, all the plants that the hop field figured out how to utilize are going to go out the door with it. Right, the plants that may in fact be tolerant of this are going to get culled in that in that kind of broad screen, if you will. That is a really good point. The fact that it's it's positive, meaning a death sentence. No, you want to hang on to the one that's positive but not showing symptoms because it's it's. Yes, I don't want to use the word resistant, it so it doesn't yeah. become a spreader. Yeah, that's crazy, man. This is serious stuff. Like this has real implications. We'll be right back to the interview, but before that, the Foop, baby. Shout out to the Foop. Go to thefoop.com, just like it sounds, and you can check out all of their amazing products from the mist to the clone gel to their amazing organic nutrients, certified organic nutrients. This is what I used on my last run. Absolutely loved how the flavor and aroma came out, the trichome density. Foop is where it's at. Plus, they've got a new product. That's right, the Bloom Pack. You guys know the Veg Pack. Well, they've also got the Bloom Pack now. What does it include? It comes with one bottle of Bloom 1, a bottle of Bloom 2, and a bottle of the sweetener. Everything your plants need to flourish while flowering. 
No additives you need in there. It's got everything. It's got silica. It's got humic acids. It's got all the macro and micronutrients. It's got mycorrhiza. It's got all sorts of biology in there for you. Foop is certified organic by Omri and now also the CDFA. Fully organic, works great in all media, feeds your biology, and you're going to want to check out the Foop. The Bloom Pack is really, really nice if you're a soil grower. You know, maybe you're in that pot of soil and you're running out of some of the food that you need to get you through the flower cycle. and You don't want to add anything too salty or anything that's going to kill your biology. Well, use Foop. You can use Foop right on top of that. The plants are going to love it. The worms are going to love it. You're going to love it. It's available in one-gallon sizes on Foop's website, also in the quart size at Amazon. You can find Foop on Amazon by going to amazon.com foop. That brings you right there. Or even better, just get it at thefoop.com. And always use code GROWCAST at thefoop.com for 15% off. So that's a better price there, especially when you use code GROWCAST at thefoop.com. Be healthy, go organic, use Foop, grab a bloom pack today, get your flowers smelling right with that amazing fish poop power. Thefoop.com, code GROWCAST. All right, without further ado, let's get back to the interview. What are you currently worked on? I know you were talking about taking a look at these these tissue culture results and, and stuff like that. But what are you currently immersed in and is really like you're you're advanced in this field. What's really getting you excited in the new research? So what we now we've now built a tool at um, a, a fork of Canopedia called Viripedia. Um, it's you can't see, view it on your phone yet. We're still it's still it's kind of a beta site, but you can get on, get on there with your laptop. The link is mentioned in our paper. I'll put it in the description as well. Look at the description. Of this oh, that'd episode. be great. Yeah. Click, yeah. click right through so you can see what we're talking about. What this uh, tool does is it takes the um, all the. Uh, Hop latent viral genomes have been published and a few others that Zamir Punja gave us another uh, half dozen and Colin Palmer gave us a few more. So it's probably up to 180 of these viral genomes that are up there. And then it paints the targets in the cannabis genome onto the viroids. So uh, whenever there's a mutation of viroid, it potentially changes the homology. You can see it from there. Whenever there's a, uh, you know, any type of variation in the cannabis genome, uh, we're going to be able to soon pull that information into it as well. So that platform allows us to see what what viroid you have and what impact it might have against the cannabis genomes that we have in the database. I think that's going to be a really helpful tool for breeding. So um, what we've been building at, at Medicinal Genomics are tools to kind of survey this stuff. So we now have a, a, a viroid genome sequencing uh, pipeline here. So the, the folks, the people who are out there using our viroid detection kits if any of their clients are interested in getting the viroid sequence, there's a we're putting in place a mechanism where they can reflex that over to our shop and we'll get some Sanger sequencing reads put across the, the genome so we have a record of it and we can put that onto uh, Viripedia for people. The other thing, if people have plants that look like they're asymptomatic with this viroid, we want to get sequencing opportunities out to those folks so that we can begin to catalog all right, what variants are in fact driving us in the right direction here to get out of this. And uh, so we're building some of those tools on the research front, we're doing some effort on RNA sequencing. So what we want to do, what we've done to date in this paper is mostly an in silica analysis where we looked for homology between genomes. And we did a little bit of qPCR to demonstrate that the, 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 the hypothesis might have some legs. But if you really want to pin down this thing and catch it in the act, uh, you want to start sequencing the RNA of plants that are infected versus plants that aren't, and preferably plants that are from the same genetic background. So what we've done is we've taken a Jamaican lion um, clone. This is actually right off of the mother plant that we sequenced four years ago. Uh, they, uh, there's some folks in Massachusetts still actually have that thing running and, and growing. And uh, we've taken clones of that. We're infecting one clone and not the other. 
extracting RNA from that over the course of time and just going to build an RNA movie, if you will, over what happens in a plant as the viroid infects the plant, which genes get knocked down, which ones get knocked up, and what can we, what can we learn from that? Ho- hopefully what we'll see in that study is that some of the regions of homology to the hop latent viroid genome are in fact down-regulated in expression, and that kind of explains the pathology. And, and if, that, if that can be confirmed, then it, it puts a lot more emphasis behind, all right, we need to be hunting for cannabis plants now and breeding for ones that have mutations in the hop latent viroids genomes target sequences. That way the thing is effectively becomes innocuous in, inside the plant. Right. Like many other viroids that get picked up, it's not going to express in those horrible ways that growers don't want. Right. It may may replicate and be PCR positive, but it's probably going to have a harder time shutting down those genes if there's mutations in the particular cultivar. This is so cool. So what we're looking at are just documented, separate documented examples of hoplite and viroid cases on this paper, right? That's what it looks like to me is these different maps of the viroid. It looks like you visually mapped them out and it's like they have little train tracks connected by circle hubs. And yeah. what's striking me as somebody who is a very lay person, not, not close to an expert, they all look wildly different. I'll tell you that they don't look super similar. And then you have these values that also seem to be wildly different. Are you just kind of tracking yeah. the intricacies and the differences between these strains? Yes, exactly. That's what is, was somewhat shocking to us. Um, there's, so there's a tool that you can take these viroid genomes and put them into called RNA fold. And it just does um, folding predictions on, on secondary structures in RNA. And you can change as little as two bases in the viroid's genome and the structure completely changes. Jeez. So that, that, that probably implies that the biology is going to be very different because I, I have to back up a little bit here to, to explain the replicative cycle of this thing for folks to understand sure. where we're going with this. But but so the, these viroids, um, they're circular in nature, which is one reason why they're so um, they're hard to get rid of. Usually RNA is degraded when it has a, a five prime end or a three prime end that's available for degradation. So linear pieces of RNA don't last very long because RNases tend to chew them up pretty quickly. When they're circular, they're, they're kind of like a, a, a Mobius script. There's nowhere for those enzymes to start attacking. And so they tend to be a little bit more robust in, in cells. Wow. Now, so how does a circular thing replicate inside the cell? Well, when it gets in there, there is something known as rolling circle amplification, where since it's a circle, it can act like a gerbil wheel and a polymerase can land on it and then just start making copies of the thing. So when it makes uh, copies with rolling circle amplification, it makes a long linear concatamer and, and you don't end up with circles. So something in the plant's genome has to chop up the amplification product and recircularize it. Some of those steps are still a bit of a mystery to us in the field, but one of the mysteries and one, one of the chopping activities that dices this thing up, they believe, is the actual viroid itself, which is a bit, um, a bit of a paradox when you think about RNA biology, that something has evolved a way to cleave itself after replication. Wow. So they, they believe this is due to what's known as a ribozyme function. So RNAs can fold in such ways that they kind of behave like enzymes. They become catalytic. If you have some metal ions around, they can start cleaving other RNAs. And that's what's believed to be going on with hop latent viroid, that there are some odd structures in it known as quadruplexed G structures. These are secondary structures that are highly conserved in the central region of the, of the viroid that we think are creating a bit of a knot that creates a ribozyme that then cuts the rolling circle amplification product up into pieces. This is, I have a diagram that helps describe this on one of our websites. I'll have to probably forward people to, because this is getting a little bit in the weeds, but 
But anyway, the processing and replication of this is partly dependent on the host having these enzymes that do rolling circle amplification. But the actual dicing the genome up into 256 base pair units, they believe is a function of the actual viroid structure. So when the structure starts changing on you due to variance, it may alter its capacity to actually process the replication of the viroid. So one reason we're tracking all of the different structures on that website is that we bet they're going to play a role in how replication competent some of these viroids are. Some, some mutations may occur that make these things a little bit less replication competent. Uh, other ones may occur that make them hyperaggressive. So I think that the secondary structure of these things is something we can't just ignore because it seems to be vital to the viroid's actual function. This is wild, wild stuff, man. I would love to get you on Growcast TV to share some of these visual assets. We're going to have to definitely stay tuned for that. You are an awesome, awesome guest. I feel like I'm getting my head around this subject that's very misunderstood, right? I mean, I think even in the, it sounds like in the developing field, it's it's still being understood. Yes, I, I do want to underscore this. This is so, there's still a lot of speculation going on here, but that that's kind of where we are with this. This is a this is a viroid in a new host, so we don't really know what's going on. But the best thing we can start doing is take some informatic tools at this and just ask ourselves some really simple questions. If RNA interference is what's believed to be driving the pathology of other viroids, then what are the sequence homologies between this viroid and the cannabis genomes we have? And we happen to have a huge database of cannabis genomes, so it was really easy for us to scan you know, 162 genomes across 1,700 other genomes and, and, and make a list of these, of these potential hypotheses, if you will. But that's kind of where we are, is they are hypotheses at the moment that need to be falsified or, or confirmed. And we're working with a lot of people in the field to try and advance that by sequencing the genomes and sequencing the viroid genomes to see if we can begin to build a database that helps predict which ones of these plants are going to escape this, and how can we build a breeding program that gets you out of this? It's it's all fun and good for us, for people to PCR forever and be on this PCR treadmill, but we don't succeed if our customers don't succeed. And we also recognize that that hasn't gotten the hop field out of this problem. Sure. So, uh, the, so it's breeding. The, what I think the hop field has done is, is bred. And so we have to start building breeding programs that help guide people out of this problem and hopefully the PCR, you know, it's just a fire drill that we deal with the next few years to tampen this down a little bit. But ultimately, we should we should be employing tools that help get us out of the problem That's as well. insane. This, this is so, so cool. Now, okay, so let's move on. We have a little bit of time left here in the episode. I want to talk about the viruses, the big boys. Really, I hear about tobacco mosaic virus quite a bit. You just gave a really good overview of hoplate and viroid. What can you tell us about tobacco mosaic virus? How does it differ from something like hoplate and viroid? And what should us cannabis growers know about it? Well, the tobacco mosaic virus is, um, so that's a really important piece of history because it's the first virus ever discovered. Whoa. This goes back in the early 1900s. Yeah, the whole virus field is based on TMB. I think it's uh, Wendell Stanley, I think, is one of the people who first came up with the structure of it. And interestingly enough, he relied on some information from Rosalind Franklin for those who don't know Rosalind Franklin, she was the one who really didn't get enough credit for discovery of DNA. She's the, the woman who was kind of left out of, oh, the, right. uh, yes. of the Watson Crick uh, story, right? So she has fingerprints on tobacco mosaic virus. And they're doing some X-ray crystallography on this thing to try and figure out um, its size and how it coils and everything. So it's a positive strand RNA virus that's about 6, 6.4 or 6,400 bases long, right? Much longer than a viroid. 
And that's because it actually does code for four proteins. It codes, I think, for like a helicase, a methyltransferase, and an RDRP, which is an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, and then I think probably a coprotein. But the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase is important, all right? That's the enzyme that replicates that virus's genome, and it's a bigger genome. And one thing that you can um, usually gauge, a, a, a back-of-the-envelope um, proxy for, for error rates inside of, of viruses and viroids are sometimes the length of the genome. So something that's 6,400 bases long usually has better replication fidelity than something that's 250 bases long. They believe the reason hop latent viroid is such a short genome is because the process it uses to hijack a polymerase in the cell is so error prone that it can't replicate a large genome. In the case of hop latent viroid, it's hijacking a DNA dependent RNA polymerase. So this, this enzyme isn't even expecting an RNA template, and somehow this viroid gets it to, you know, to hotwire that thing. And in the process, it makes tons of mistakes. Uh, so it can't possibly make a long genome without making mistakes. And so it tends to make things, if it tries to make long ones, they're not replication competent because there's too many errors. As the genomes get bigger, they tend to have an increasing amount of fidelity in them. Like you get up to coronaviruses that are 30 KB. Um, the reason that's possible is there is an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase in a coronavirus, but it also has an exo gene, which is an error-proofing uh, part of the enzyme that helps correct mistakes. So the longest RNA genomes have error correction in them. Now, tobacco mosaic doesn't have any error correction, so it still has makes some errors and its genome's a little bit smaller. And then you get down to the viroids, and they're they're the most error prone and have the most diverse swarms. Wow. Um, so if you think if you want to think about like quasi-species swarms, you have the viroids, which are, are highly clouded and very swarmed. And then you get into the coronaviruses that have more error correction capacity, and there's they have swarms, but they're less diverse and they they spread out less over time. Jeez. So that's kind of the difference between them. Now, in terms of TMV and tobacco, I have not seen molecular evidence of it in cannabis yet. All right. So oh, there's, really? there's rumors of it having been there. I've not seen anyone actually get sequence evidence of it. Now, I've I've had some you know personal communication going with Zumir Punja. He may be onto something up there in Canada. He may have found it. He's still doing some work, I think, to like you know validate that and publish it. So it's not it's not my story to tell. But until there's really sequence out there that shows what it is, I'd be reluctant to call it tobacco mosaic viruses, because some of these viruses, as they move to host, change so much that it's really not fair to call them the same thing. And we may find in cannabis that the genomes are so diverged, it may not be fair to call it tobacco mosaic virus. And that like, like there's, if you look at tobacco mosaic virus, when it goes into other species, they diverge so much, they sometimes rename them. Right. So there are, there are mosaic viruses in, in, other, in other plants that aren't called tobacco mosaic virus anymore. So uh, nonetheless, it may, it may turn out that what we find in cannabis has some similar structures to tobacco mosaic virus and that it's a rod-shaped thing that has an RDRP and has a helicase and methyltransferase. It may, may have some of those same genes. They just may be shuffled a little bit or so diverged that the taxonomists are going to want to call it something new. So I think we have to wait until there's some good hard sequencing data on this. Now, I think tobacco stunt virus has been found out in Colorado. I think the group out there that did some work in Pueblo found a lot of beet curly top virus, some tobacco stunt virus, and I think obviously hoplatin virus and, and cannabis cryptic virus, I think were all found in those in that particular study. That's a great study, actually. I think there's a um we have a coffee talk, I think, from one of the authors of that at uh hanging off our website. But oh, nice. Shout that out. What is that? What is that URL? I don't, I don't have it at my fingertips, but go to, if you go to Coffee Talk, it's a CanMed podcast series that Ben Amaral runs. And um, one of the authors came on and gave a description of that paper. 
And it's a very fascinating paper because they did find some sequence divergence in some of the viruses that they were um, that they were looking at. And it's an outdoor paper, meaning it, it, it's it's looking at viruses traveling in, in outside, and they they see a lot more B curly top virus than we see perhaps at indoor grows, and they sure. think that's due to the it's transmitted by uh, leafhoppers. Wow, which uh, aren't really happening indoors, so or not as much. So there, there's um, there's another side of this, which is where is where's the cannabis being grown? Um, obviously, outdoor grows are going to be exposed to a much wilder variation and, and uh, habitat than we're going to see on the indoor grows. And, and there may be different pandemics we see in the outdoor uh, hemp market than we see in the indoor cannabis market. That makes a lot of sense. It seems like the pests are an overlooked vector a lot of the times. When I bring up, you know, transmission, the first thing that everyone talks about in the cannabis space is like cleaning your tools, right? When you're yeah. when you're topping your plants, that's a really bad way to share this type of viroid or, or or anything that can transmit through the tissue by topping each plant and not washing your scissors. I have other people say that, hey, you're not washing them good enough. You need to be in a bleach solution. Yep. You know, sitting that's, in true. Alco- that's true. You'll back that up. Yeah, alcohol does not kill this viroid. It is a. It, I, I have uh, the biggest problem we have in our lab right now is that we can't get rid of this damn thing and pipettes get contaminated and we end up seeing, wow. you know, very late CTs that are false positives. And a lot of the tools we use, like there's some, there's some laboratory tools like RNA zap it, or it's a tool that's like an RNA that tries to kill these things. It doesn't uh, do a very good job at destroying this viroid. And I think it's because it's circular. So bleach, bleach does it. Oh, no. What about this? What about my 6,000 degree flame from my Bic lighter where, I, you know, you take the lighter. Oh, that should do it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll really? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Yeah. No shit. Uh, there there you been, go. Because that's all. Yeah, there been have been thing. concerns. Um, I think in the tobacco mosaic field, they were finding that it could be on tobacco and cigarettes, and people handling those Whoa. could actually move it around tobacco farms uh, and other plants. So that I, I don't know that um, the extent the same thing is true with this viroid yet, but I bet some people are are, are taking precautions on that front as well. Jeez. Well, there you go. The flame test gets the pass. That's incredible. That's a big takeaway from this show. I thought for sure that. Yeah, was gonna... I haven't done any controlled experiment. I'm just guessing that that's gonna that's gonna nuke it. <laughs> right. That's what I would think too. You know, and then I just give it yeah. a good wipe on my jeans and I move along. It's very very cleanly. It's very sterile. <laughs> oh, oh oh oh! I thought you're you're just you're flaming it with a with like a torch and then and then wiping it off. Yeah, exactly. I mean, usually, yeah, ideally, yeah. I have the paper towel roll there. But, uh, you know, you, you got to do what you got to do. I don't have time to be sitting around sterilizing all my scissors. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Uh, I'm just uh, I'm a lazy gardener. Don't be like me. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> so, yeah, man, do you want to talk a little bit more about vectors? I mean, we have to cover it, right? You know, we talked about the fungal network passing. We talked about physical transmission through tools and things like that. You mentioned flies and, and pests. Is it anything that lands on the plant? Anything that penetrates the plant cell wall? How does that work? I think it's it's, it's probably the latter. I think there has to be this has to get into the xylem, and once it's in the xylem and phloem of the plant, it gets down to the roots. It seems to do a lot of replication down in the roots. The CT scores are in fact higher down there in the roots. Oh. So, um, so yeah, that's that's an interesting point. So clones, it's probably easy to get roots from clones because they hang out the sides of the you know, the rock wool or whatever you have them in. And so you can cleanly get access to, to roots and those work really well in the tools that we have. You just boil them in our, in our um, boil kit and you get, you get really crazy high CTs. When people, um, or I should say low CTs, very high viral loads. Uh, wow. When people actually get roots out of dirt, 
there's um, you have to take a different DNA or RNA prepping approach because there is humic acid in dirt that often inhibits PCR. Ha <laughs> The magic stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that's one thing that's just a, a little when you know, there's a lot of encouragement for people to go after roots. Just be aware that it's a double-edged sword. If you get roots that have a lot of dirt on them, you want to rinse off that dirt before you throw it into uh, any test because that may in- inhibit your ability to detect things. But if you have really clean roots that are coming out from like a clone and it's not like, you know, it's not a rock wool or something, though, those, those are the best things to, to survey for. You won't miss it if it's in the, if it's in the roots. Wow. That is so the, in terms of the pests though, they had, you know, we don't have um, hard evidence of flies moving this around in cannabis yet. I have seen it for LCV. So lettuce, there's a paper out of Israel that shows lettuce sclerosis virus doing this where they actually get the flies and show that the, the you know the viroids in the flies. Oh man, that's crazy. Yeah, that's very hard to do. I think that's one of the reasons why those those studies don't come as quickly as you'd like them to. Is that getting DNA out of something as small as a fly is is an RNA is is really tricky. You you have to sometimes collect more than one of them to get enough to to analyze, and um, that means you're you're running around you know picking flies off of uh, off a of tape and trying to crunch them up into in something and purifying it to see if there's any 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 viroid in there. Fun, but it can yeah. be done. I mean, that is something that if folks are interested in, in, in nailing that down, that is something those can go in the mail. <laughs> so we can, people want to send us a bunch of their flies. We'd be very curious uh, to try a PCR out of those things to see if they, in fact, are carrying it. You heard them, Growcast members. You could crunch up those flies <laughs> in your dudded, fucked up grow and right. send it <laughs> care of Growcast to Kevin McKernan. Oh man, that is that is funny. You are in a very specific field, my friend. You are you are yeah. the niche of the niche. I may be the only person in the world who wants your hop latent viroid flies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it, man. I love it. Listen, what did we miss? What didn't we cover before we wrap it up here and, and give our plugs and do all this stuff? Oh, well, there are other viruses out there. I think take a look at that paper out of, out of, out of Colorado. It's not all. About, I know hoplite and virus is all over the West Coast, and that seems to be everyone's concern right now. But um, there's another 12 that we screen for. And uh, we do get some feedback from customers using that stuff all over the world. And, and hoplite and virus isn't the only thing going on internationally. There is um, some lettuce chlorosis virus out here on the East Coast. We see, we've seen that in a few places from Florida to um, Maryland. And then B. curly top is, is showing up in Colorado quite a bit. So Jeez. Yeah, have a have a look at our website. We've got all those things up there. And uh, there's in addition to that, the tools that we that we build to detect these viruses. You can also turn around and aim at picking up bacteria and fungi uh, for a lot of the things that the regulators are looking for for Aspergillus, E. coli, Salmonella. All runs in the same platform. So it's a bit of a Swiss Army knife if you start getting involved in it. That is awesome. Throw out the URL and where everybody can find you. Instagram, anything like that. Yeah, I'm on Instagram, um, Twitter. I think Instagram, I'm just my name, Kevin underscore McKernan73. Same thing on Twitter without the 73. And then uh, medicinalgenomics.com is probably the better place to go. That's got more of the content uh, related to this than I have on any of my personal accounts. Love it. Medicinal Genomics. We will definitely reach back out to you, Kevin, if you ever have time. This was an excellent episode. The growers loved hearing from you. I know I'm going to get some good feedback on this episode. I have one more question before we wrap it up. It seems to me, and maybe this is just not how it works, but is cannabis kind of more susceptible to viruses? Why is it that it's getting, I know it's closely related to hops, right? So it gets the hop latent viroid. But then you mentioned like this disease that affects lettuce and this this virus that affects tobacco. Is cannabis especially susceptible or no? Is it just some plants transfer viruses to other plants? 
Yeah, I don't, it's a good question. I, I, I don't have a good sense of the, the frequency of this in other agricultural products. Right. It could be that, you know, cannabis is one of the products that's forced to be, to have really high expense. And so people tend to cram these things in into tighter areas. That could be part of it, right? What other grow, what other grow has to grow in a prison, right? Everyone can grow in glass houses and, and, uh, yeah, they pack it. You're right. But, but these you really do have to pack. And, And sometimes the, you know, the financial burden of trying to grow under these constant, like the changes of regulations that happen every year, there's probably no harder place to grow than in the cannabis market based on how unstable the the regulations are. So I suspect there's just a little bit more supply chain chaos going on in the cannabis field that might leave us exposed to these things. But could be something we're doing. That's fascinating. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's, supply chain is tricky, right? And it, it can not everyone can always sell to this. We see this just in the molecular biology field. Like not everyone wants to sell to, to people that are in this field. And so you you start off on one product and then you find out, oh, they discovered you were a cannabis company. So they stopped selling to you. And then you got to switch to another product. And so things like that mean there's a, you're constantly juggling variables that make it, uh, you're, you're probably more prone to infections when that happens because there's just a lot more chaos going on in your process. It's a good point, man. It's a good point. We're going to have to get you back on and explore some of these other viruses and explore these topics more. Thank you, Kevin. This was an awesome first time appearance and we are very, very appreciative of you. Yeah. Well, thank you for the time to go through it. We love this work. Call us if, if you're interested in doing any studies on, uh, you know, driving this toward, uh, you know, driving some breeding programs away from this thing. I think it's a important area that's going to be uh, really valuable, very valuable going forward. Go ahead and give Kevin a follow. Everybody shoot him a message. Tell him you, uh, tell him you heard him here and that you like the episode. We do appreciate you, dear listeners. And that is all for today. We've got a bunch of more in-depth education coming this month and beyond. I know you loved today's episode. Stay tuned, everybody. This is Kevin McKernan and Jordan River signing off. Wishing you an extraordinary day, everybody. We'll see you next time on the next Growcast. Be safe and grow smarter. All right. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening. That's our show. Thank you to Kevin for coming on. What an awesome episode. You know that he'll be back for more. Before we wrap it up, I want to urge you to check out everything that Growcast is doing. Find it all at growcastpodcast.com slash action. There you'll find access to our membership program where we got hundreds of hours of bonus content, video content. If you love this show, you'll love membership. Plus, we'll solve your garden problems. You get members-only discounts and so much more. Meetups and class discounts, members-only meetups. You don't want to miss it. Also, you'll find Growcast Seed Co., where we have Rhizo Rich breeding some of the most fire genetics out there to date. The Frost Cakes is absolutely killing it lately. See everything Rhizo Rich is doing, including a Oreos feminization drop coming up so soon. I'm just blown away by this tectonic truffle that I am enjoying. It's so peachy and gassy and sweet and covered in frost. So shout out to Rich and all the work he's doing. And of course, you'll also find our classes up there. Come on out to the Living Soil Masterclass. It's blowing people's minds. It's the best education I've ever been a part of. And Queen of the Sun is absolutely transforming people's gardens, teaching them what they need to know about the magic of microbes. So I'll see you there. See all that and more at growcastpodcast.com action. Make sure to sign up to our mailing list there. It's free. And I appreciate you listeners supporting us and supporting this awesome show. All right, everyone, I've got a big year planned. I've got so many things in the works. It's too much to update now. I'm just plugging away, uh, preparing for a huge year, doing work in events and education and activism. Stay tuned. All right, everyone, have a great day. See you next time. Bye.
you're running around, you know, picking flies off of uh, off a of tape and trying to crunch them up into in something and purifying it to see if there's any 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 viroid in there. 